Okay, if you will, uh, before we get started, uh, just go ahead and take uh, about two minutes uh, and look over the first 16 verses here of chapter 2 as we set up the uh, dream of Nebuchadnezzar of the great image. So take just a couple of minutes here of silence and we'll uh, like to get your observations and we'll make some some observations and some uh, applications in the first 16 verses. Okay, we've got a pretty simple introduction here uh, to uh, to this vision that's about to be uh, about to be delivered. Uh, first off, I might just mention uh, that when you get to two verse four, you will notice that the uh, the Chaldean said to the king in Aramaic, and right there begins the very unusual Aramaic section of the book of Daniel. Uh, and that goes through, as you can see on the screen there, that goes through chapter 7, verse uh, 28. I can see right now that I uh, messed up on, forgot to uh, individualize my PowerPoint thing, so now you get the whole screen at once. But at any rate, uh, you, you see the Aramaic section there. Uh, anybody know uh, one of the other books in the Bible that have an Aramaic section? No? None of you get to go to heaven. You have to know this. That's, that's the end for you. you know, so you just... <laughs> no? Anybody? Ezra. That's right. So Ezra also has an Aramaic uh, section because talking to people who speak Aramaic. Can you think of a reason why there would be an Aramaic section that uh, covers these chapters two through uh, chapter seven. Can you think of why there would be that it would speak in Aramaic instead of Hebrew? No? I guess, yeah, go ahead, John. It was sort of a universal language at the time of yeah. this section. Yeah, so this is about world empires, <clears throat> uh, as we see in this particular vision and, and uh, another in chapter 7 especially. But this is about world empires. This is about revealing who the true God of heaven actually is. And the whole purpose of this is for God to begin to reveal himself to the empires, the kingdoms of the world. So this is all about the kingdoms of men as opposed to the kingdom of God. And God is is really being gracious here by revealing himself to these kingdoms. So when you think about, for example, in Romans chapter 1, and you think about how in Romans chapter 1 began in uh, in verse 18 and 19, how God had revealed himself, that though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks. When you think about that in, in that context, and you're thinking about when did God reveal himself? Well, of course, there's all kinds of incidents in which he does, but the book of Daniel is one 
one of the great incidents in which God actually reveals himself uh, to the kingdoms of men. And, uh, and so Daniel is, uh, is, is really known for that. What in the... Um, I will come to that question later. Uh, So anyway, what are some of your observations about this particular section? What stands out to you? And it was many dreams, not just the one that we were told about here. Okay. He had, yeah, it says he has dreams. Uh, And I, I, you know, and, and yet there's one main dream. I can't answer that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. What else? Yes. Um, Barry, I made an observation that I think chapter 1 of Daniel takes place in the first year of King Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Because this says the second year. Yeah. So chapter 1 has to be the first year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And chapter 2 is an example of Daniel and his uh, friends being exemplary above all the others. Yeah, and yet it took them three years before they were able to present themselves before the king. That's right. So there's a contradiction in Scripture. Uh, everybody throw their Bibles away. I've got a trash can in the back. You know, so. <clears throat> no, good observation. Uh, actually, you have a, what you have here is there's a, the, the, in the first year is the presentation year of Nebuchadnezzar when he comes back. And this has been suggested by a lot of people, but the, you have a presentation year and then you have his first year, then you have his second year. So the second year is actually three years in which he has reigned, but this is the way the Babylonians would have looked at it. And uh, at any rate, yeah, you, good, good observation. You, uh, real, real uh, simple little point there. But uh, some of those who doubt the scriptures uh, have a uh, meltdown when they see this and go, see, well, you know, even if it was a regular human being writing this, they're not that dumb. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to say that Daniel and his friends had to be prepared three years to meet before the king, but it was only the second year when they did. Uh, yeah, come on. Okay, yeah. Um, it seems like either Nebuchadnezzar or one of his predecessors was uh, wronged in some way by these magicians and fortune tellers and all this sort of thing that they he's so firm that they have to they have to tell him both the dream and the interpretation. It, 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 to me, that has the, the tenor of you guys have pulled this kind of thing before. I don't trust you. Yeah, and and you you could you kind of get that flavor, don't you? That uh, this uh, this king has has pretty well has their number. He knows they just kiss up all the time, and uh, he says, "No, not this time. You're going to tell me the dream, and then you're going to tell me interpretation. And if you can't tell me the dream, I know you're 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 hooey. <laughs> That's it, Mara." Yeah, good. He didn't want anybody messing around. He right. One final right, and that, that's really interesting because it, the dream must have been, you know, when God gives you a dream, it's obviously something different than what we would normally dream. This is, a, this is something that really just, boom, invades his mind. He realizes that, that this has a message somehow and he's supposed to get the answer to it. And he's determined to get the answer and you see that. What do you think about oh, Neb's uh, 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 character here, by the way? He's <laughs> not a very nice guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's really wise to kill all the wise people. That's right. All, all your counselors, everybody will see that they probably he didn't have a lot, of, a lot of confidence in them anyway. But it doesn't matter who it is. He's going to kill Daniel. He's going to kill his friends. He doesn't care who it is. He's, he's killing them all. And uh, I, I, I love the, uh, the, the second answer that these, these counselors give him uh, on, on, uh, in verse 11 of chapter 2. He says, the thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods who dwell not with flesh. King, you're asking something that only the gods could answer. And how are we? You're expecting something far more than what we could even do. And that's true. There, there was op obviously uh, truth in that. Okay? Uh, anything else? Did you notice? All right. Uh, yeah, go ahead. You asked about the of 16 verses? Yeah. Well, one of my favorite things about it is Daniel didn't know yet. He had prayed to God that he was like, I will do this. And yeah. Then he went to God. Exactly. So he didn't know if he was God was going to answer his prayer. And he was like, I will. Right, but he, as, as you see in verse 16, he requests the king. He says, give me just a second. <laughs> give me a little time here. And uh, so that I might be able to show the interpretation of, of the dream. Exactly. So you, you see that. I, I, as you see on the screen, I, I've noted here uh, that number one in verse one, his, his trouble, his, he's troubled by his sleep, etc. His sleep left him. He wants to know the answer. But here's the most powerful king in the world and he can't find an answer. Uh, again, it doesn't matter who you are, uh, your answers are going to come from God, and that's the only way this is going to happen. There seems to be a lot of parallelism between this story and um, the captivity in Egypt. Um, so you've got Joseph being the one in captivity and slaying the Jews to Pharaoh. Uh, right. You've also got the conflict, if you bring in the story of Moses, you've got the conflict between uh, the man of God and the magicians of the, right. of the captors. Right. And every time. God wins. <laughs> exactly. Right. And that, that's that's a really good point because you can imagine Daniel here. Uh, if, if, how how would Daniel have confidence in God? He's going to get him through that. It seems like that. He'd go back to Egypt and go, well, I remember God getting Moses through this. He got Joseph through these things. Uh, this this is what this is about. And it's exactly right. I suggest, go ahead, Julie. Yeah. I was just going to say, I think it's amazing that he gave him because it says he was violent. Yeah, yeah. Um, so maybe he already realized that he was different. Yeah. Yeah, maybe so, but at the very least, uh, Daniel is able to say to him, just, I will give you the interpretation. Give me a time. Give, I'll, I'll set the time. Who knows how long it was, you know. Pardon? He didn't want to give the answer. Yeah, but, but the, 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 he requested the king to appoint him a time. Verse, uh, verse 16. So here's Daniel saying, you tell me the time. Give me this much, give me so much time. You tell me the time, I'll have the interpretation. By then, the king goes, all right, apparently gave him a time so that he could show the interpretation. 
Uh, at any rate, you, you get that. I, I suggest up here under verse 12, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's fury at the wise, man, wise men is more uh, uh, over a lack of his, uh, his failure to be able to be his own God. You know, he wants all power. Everything should go according to his whim. And he is the last person to humble himself under God. And he's angry that he doesn't have an answer uh, right now and that he can't get an answer. So unreasonable fury, you know, obviously that is being uh, being shown here. And the suggestion, too, that when you look at verse 10, 11, these Chaldeans are admitting uh, the failure of paganism. Why, why can't they just go to their gods? They got all kinds of gods. Nebo is a god, Nebuchadnezzar. His name comes after him. Nebo is one of their big gods. Uh, Belteshazzar comes after the god Bel, who was given Daniel's name. So there's all these gods, and yet these gods cannot answer uh, this question. Did I ever turn this on? I guess I did. <laughs> all right. Uh, at any rate, so you, you see that, uh, that failure. Okay. Take a moment now and look at 1723 through 23. Just a minute. One minute. Okay. Make some quick ob observations there. What are some things stand out to you very quickly? I like how there's a hint at what the dream means in the in Daniel's prayer, and when he says disposing some kings and establishing others. Yes, that that's that's right. He 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 immediately, and this is a repeated theme. And it's good observation. Is a repeated theme that God is the one who's in control. All the time. I mean, he, right over the most powerful nations of the world, kings of the world, no matter how powerful they are, God is the one who's over them. Excellent. Okay, what else? You see stark contrast between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of men. You compare uh, verse 21 to verses 10 and 11. It says, there, there is no man that can understand yeah. this thing. Um, they're looking for their wisdom and astrology or, or philosophy or whatever. And, uh, and Daniel's just asking God for answers. Yeah. Daniel, he knows it's not in himself, so he's going to ask God for the answer. Do you notice uh, the a key word in, uh, that goes throughout the book of Daniel that we've already seen in chapter 1, and now we see in chapter 2? What is it, Mara? He gives. He gives. Over and over. God is the one who gives, and you see that here uh, in verse 23. You have given me wisdom and might, and now made known to me what we ask of you. Uh, so here is Daniel admitting that this is the way it is. You know, I think, I think it's interesting just to note in concern of this, you know, when you're reading this, you're going, Daniel, hurry, 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 hurry. You, you, you got to save these wise men. And the writer, instead of going immediately to verse 24 and going, Daniel ran in and said, I got it, I got it, I got it. He stops and gives what? Daniel's praise to God. Right. He stops and says, ah, no panic here. <laughs> First thing we need to do is give praise and thanksgiving to God. And that's, uh, that, that's, that's real critical. So you, you see the, uh, the writers pause and you see this picture of God giving wisdom and power and might, etc. Very good. Look at 24 through, through 30. One minute. Hmm. 
Okay. So what uh, what is the key here? What do, what do you see? A couple of real key things in this text. He makes clear who the wisdom is coming from. Who the information? Speak up. He makes clear to Nebuchadnezzar who the information is coming. Yes. From. Uh, so first and foremost, he. <laughs> Daniel's like, read my lips. This isn't me. In fact, pretty good rebuke, doesn't he? Verse 27, he, he, he basically uh, uh, sides with the other rulers, uh, the other counselors and wise men. Uh, he says, there, there is no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers who can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. So th that's just really true. But there is a God in heaven. And, and he can deliver this. And then he, again, verse 30, uh, it isn't me. It isn't me. Didn't come from me. So he's really making sure that there is no honor given to him. And we know how that works. Just like when the Apostle Paul and, uh, and Barnabas, you know, went into uh, Lystra and they all thought they were a god and wanted to offer to them. And, and Paul and Barnabas were standing on their head trying to say, it's not us, it's not us. But they speak in the Laconian language. <laughs> it's a little challenge. It's not us. Don't do this. Uh, so this, is the, this would be the tendency of that day. Good. What else do you notice? Mara. Nebuchadnezzar wished to give a man who was given a name to glorify his God credit for the interpretation. Instead, he was forced to acknowledge a God, not only by what Daniel just said, but what the wise men said. They were wise men, like Good. you said. And Nebuchadnezzar is forced at every point to acknowledge yes. that he is not a God. That's right. That's right. Good point. Good point. He, he's going to, he has to acknowledge that it's not just Daniel. He gives Daniel honor, but he has to acknowledge that it's absolutely greater than Daniel, no doubt. Okay, somebody else. Yeah, Drew. It's interesting that in verse 18, he was seeking mercy so that he and his three buddies would be destroyed. But then his message is, hey, don't even go destroy all the other wise men. Yeah. Like he shows mercy to them and cares about them even in the midst of like saving his own skin. Yeah, great, great point. I mean, Daniel could have thought, could have said, you know those other guys, you really should put them to death because, I mean, after all, they're a bunch of frauds, I could tell you. <laughs> he doesn't pull that stuff. So, yeah, here, here's a, a man of integrity uh, with, without doubt. Um, anything else? Look at from God's, what, what you know, big picture. What's God, what's God doing here that is an act of graciousness? Well, it's an act of graciousness is even to give him the dream. Yes, yes. Here is God concerned, and he doesn't just do it this time. He's going to do it in chapter 3, and he's going to do it in chapter 4. He is going to do everything he can to get... Nebuchadnezzar's attention that there is a God in heaven. God is, is bursting into history here. In major, major empires, major kings, God is coming into to, uh, to their lives and interrupting everything to try to get them to acknowledge uh, who the real power is. And this, this is going, you know, God, uh, to, send, to send the Apostle Paul to preach to Nero is pretty impressive. 
He's also giving opportunity for his people to uh, to have a role in this and to make uh, make themselves more comfortable, give them right. more opportunity to. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Once the others who are in captivity and then eventually, of course, those that come with Ezekiel uh, a number of years later, uh, these kinds of things would should have given them uh, a lot of encouragement. Uh, uh, that there's there's no doubt, and so Daniel becomes one who, uh, who who exemplifies then that God is still involved, even though at this particular point, I mean, you are you are at the point where uh, the nation of Israel or Judah really is no longer an independent nation. They are in, in subjection to Babylon, and it's not going to be long before they will be absolutely wiped out and not even have a nation. So it's, uh, it's, it's a critical time for them, for the people of Israel, to learn something uh, about what God is doing. So it's not just for uh, these, these others. All right, uh, <clears throat> so uh, I've pointing that out in verse, verse 30 there, that you may know the thoughts of your mind. It's God who wants basically to you, for you to know these things. And God is being, introducing himself uh, to this nation. Okay, let's, uh, let's read together uh, for time's sake. Let's read together 31 through 45 here. And then you pick out some of the key, key things here. For most Christians, this is fairly well known. If you haven't studied this before, this will be somewhat different for you. And all you need to know is a little bit about uh, ancient history, and this will fall into place. So here he, he starts with telling him what the, what the dream was. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image, this image, the mighty, mighty and of exceeding brightness stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, the chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, the legs of iron, its part, feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by, by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, and all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king the interp its interpretation. Now I've always emphasized, by the way, at that particular point, please pay careful attention here and don't try to interpret the interpretation. Here's the interpretation. <laughs> Premillennial doctrine, and we'll talk a little bit about this, but has always tried to interpret the interpretation. You already have the interpretation. Quit adding an interpretation to the interpretation. At any rate, if that sounds redundant, okay. Verse 37. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, make you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar represents what empire? Babylonian Empire. Uh, 
All right, so real, real, real simple. You got, you're starting here with the Babylonian Empire. Their great power period is from about 612 when they conquer Nineveh uh, and Assyria Empire falls from about 612 down to 539 when they're destroyed by the coalition of the Medes and Persians. So there's your Babylonian period. Now he goes on and then in verse 39, he says, another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. Okay, another kingdom inferior to you is going to rise after you. Before you name what that kingdom is, tell me how Nebuchadnezzar hears those words. What? Well, he, it's inferior to him, so he might think, well, at least I'm a, I'm a hot shot, you know, I'm, I'm the big wig here. What else would he have seen? After you. <laughs> How about that one? <laughs> Wait a minute, after me? Yeah, dude, you will die, your kingdom will not survive. <laughs> after you comes another kingdom, inferior to you, but you're gone, and your kingdom is gone. So that tells you, even if he is inferior to you, you're still uh, dead meat. So the uh, second kingdom, the kingdom that follows Babylon, is Medo-Persian Empire. Some just call it the Persian Empire, uh, but it is a coalition of Medes and Persians that do that. And then a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. Notice these are kingdoms that have absolute rule over the known world at that time. So the third kingdom would be what kingdom? Greece. That's Greece. So, so basically, you have the Persian Empire taking over. Remember your dates here. And if you're one who says in your mind, I, I can't remember dates and I don't care anyway, uh, please uh, uh, re what, what did the What did the Lord say? Uh, the, the Lord rebuke you. There we are. How about that one? Uh, <laughs> if you know the dates, you can tell the story. It makes more sense. Try to know the dates. So... Babylonian Empire falls to the Medes and Persians in 539 B.C., 536. They allow Israel to come back out of captivity, those who want to. They survive the Persian reign until the rise of Alexander the Great, about 332 B.C., and Alexander, in a very short period of time, uh, conquers the world and then laments the fact there's no place else to conquer and immediately dies about age 23. Yeah. <laughs> of a bad fever. God says, enough of you. Uh, but you have the Greek period then starting in 332. All right. So there's your third kingdom. And then verse 39, another, uh, excuse, excuse me, verse 40. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks into pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as for you, uh, and as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay, and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom should be partly strong and partly brittle. 
As you saw, the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall, be, it shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Okay, so what's the fourth kingdom? Rome. All right. Uh, now, somebody read for me uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. How about that? The time is fulfilled. All right. The time period that had been prophesied about the kingdom of God coming, the time is fulfilled. We're in the Roman Empire around 30 AD, uh, something like that. Uh, the empire as an emperor empire has been going on since Augustus, uh, about uh, 2930 BC. And uh, so the time has arrived. The time, the, it's been fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, the, fortunately, the premillennial doctrine has really waned over the past 20 years. I think probably because uh, all the things that these guys were spouting uh, at the end of the 20th century never came to pass and they put the tail between their legs and went back home. Uh, but uh, their view was that when Jesus came, uh, he wanted to establish the kingdom, but the Jews killed him instead and he went, oh, uh, God will have to establish the church instead and I'll come back in a couple thousand years and we'll try again. And if you think that is wild, it is. But uh, uh, as was often preached back in the mid 20th century, and I was part of that, unfortunately, but or fortunately, however you want to look at it. But we would say if premillennialism is true, it makes the prophets false prophets. It makes Jesus uh, less than God who can't even figure out when he can start a kingdom nor have the power to do so. Uh, it's real foolishness. In Mark 9.1, Jesus said, some of you are standing here who will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God come with power. So very, very clearly laying out that the kingdom is at hand, it's ready uh, to begin, and yet you still have people knocking on your door saying, are you looking forward to the kingdom? And no, I'm not. <laughs> Been there, done that, still here. And uh, unless you can show me a few apostles that are still alive, I think you're, uh, you got the wrong idea. Okay, so there we have, we have this marked out uh, observations. What are, what are some of the things we should uh, note in this uh, vision and interpretation of the vision? Yeah, here's that given again. God's going to 
going to give this, this kingdom. God is the one who is the author of this. Uh, in fact, what phrase does he use when he talks about how the mountain that starts the kingdom, what about that mountain? The stone that's cut out of the mountain. Okay, it crushes all the other kingdoms, so it's more powerful. All the other kingdoms become in submission to it. Those kingdoms are gone. What else about that stone? Yeah, there's no human hand. So that's, he, he, or if you were reading some of the older versions, say, without hands. And it's a, it, there's, there's no human involvement to this. Uh, God is going to cut a stone out of a mountain. In prophecy, what does mountain usually stand for? Okay, so uh, you're referring to Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, where he says in the last days, the mountain of the Lord, of the house of the Lord will be established in the top of the mountains and above the hills and all nations will flow to it. Notice how he's using mountain and hills in regard to kingdoms. And you'll see that over and over again. Also, trees sometimes are pictures of great kingdoms that then the tree gets lopped down and cut off. You'll see that at the end of Isaiah 10 and the beginning of Isaiah 11. Even Israel is pictured as a great tree that's lopped down to the ground and then a shoot, a sprout comes up, which becomes the Messiah and the new kingdom. Here it's a, it, it's a stone cut out of a mountain. What do you think the mountain is that the stone's cut out of? What kingdom? No. The stone that's cut out of the mountain becomes God's kingdom. What's the mountain that the stone is cut out of? Pardon? Judah. Yeah, Israel. Israel is the physical nation out of which God cuts a stone. Who's, who's, the, who's the cornerstone of God's kingdom? Jesus. And he cuts this out and he then builds a mountain, a kingdom, a spiritual kingdom that crushes all other kingdoms uh, comes out of that. So you're seeing that, that play there as well. Uh, what other things that you see in this uh, dream interpretation? Is there anything to the decreasing value of the materials? Yeah, sure. Yeah, and he, uh, he seems to indicate that when he says, Neb, you know, your kingdom and everything, it's, it's really the best one. Afterwards comes some inferior kingdoms. When you get to Rome, of course, he spends a lot of time on Rome. There almost no time on Persia. He's going to spend time on Persia later on. <laughs> but no time on Persia here. But a lot on Rome. Why would you think he'd spend so much time on Rome? From what you know in the New Testament, etc. Okay, one of them, it, it's going to be the time in which God's kingdom is going to be established. That's exactly right. And how does Rome treat God's new 
kingdom. Not good. Book of Revelation is going to spend a lot of time, chapter 13, with this fourth empire making a specific reference to chapter 7 of Daniel, which has another dream that's very similar to this, in which Daniel has this particular vision and, uh, and sees a fourth empire in the same way. It's a very brutal empire. So you talk about its, its quality, not quality, it, it's iron, uh, and it's brutal. So it indicates a very hard, harsh nation. Rome ruled through brutality. They brought peace to the empire and were lauded by its citizens for bringing peace. And yet the peace was at the uh, expense of people's lives. You follow us or die. It was just really that simple. Uh, that's why crucifixion. They crucified anybody who was seemingly uh, a, a challenge to the empire, and it was the argument the Jews gave uh, to Pilate as to why they ought to put Jesus to death. He proclaims himself to be a king. You, can, you cannot have that in that empire. So yeah, there, there's that. So then you have, the, the, but the iron is mixed with clay, soft clay. What does that imply? Is that two Uh, not, not exactly. No, it's more the uh, it's more the idea. Of the, think of the quality of think of taking clay and and wet clay and trying to to attach it to iron and build something with it. But as strong as it is, it's not going to last. Yeah, as strong as it is, it's got a serious weakness. That's right, and it doesn't adhere. So if you know about Roman Empire history. Rome, Rome covered a lot of territory, but Rome's biggest problem was they covered a lot of territory. <laughs> and they're trying to do what every kingdom from that time on has tried to do, practically. Uh, bring the whole world. You know, you think of uh, England, who had colonies everywhere, and they're trying to bring the whole world under their control. How'd that work out for them? Okay, they can barely survive as a nation today. So that doesn't work out for them very well because they can't get nationalism out of the hearts of people. And so what Rome did is they would set up puppet kings all over their empire. That's why you have people like Herod uh, the Great and the other Herods that are in Judea. The, as long as Herod, has, as long as you keep everybody in control and you follow us and you make sure people pay taxes, we're good. We'll be good. Rome was very poor. It was a very, we don't think of it that way, but it was a very, very poor city. And they relied on taxes of those they conquered in order to even supply themselves and support themselves. Uh, so it was needed that they have that. Well, of course, you have that nationalism going on. You're, you're, you're like the juggling act, you know. You're, you're trying to keep every, all the cats in the, in the house. <laughs> They're running everywhere. And there's that, that kind of concern. And that was their weakness. And eventually what cracked and, uh, and they began to fall. Uh, and, and so, anyway, he's describing this lack of adhesion. Very, very difficult to get, put Babylon back together again.
the Tower of Babel and all the languages and everybody going off into nationalism, things like that. Very, very difficult to get that all back together. Notice these last words. We just got a couple of minutes here. Uh, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and paid homage to, the Dan to Daniel, commanded that an offering and an incense be offered up to him. The Lord answered, the king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. And so Daniel gets all these honors and remains in, in, in the king's court. Um, uh, notice what uh, he does not do. <laughs> notice what King Nebuchadnezzar does not do. I mean, he gives glory and honor to your king, to your God, all that kind of stuff. But notice, let's see, I need to get, go on here. Uh, notice what he uh, does not do. He doesn't, he doesn't ask how we can extend the kingdom or yeah. make change. Well, there's this great God, and, and he, he, he's just been shown that the, 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 the God of heaven is the greatest of all gods, and yet, why, why doesn't he say, Daniel? I need to know more about this God. I need to know how to please this God. I need to know what this, this God uh, is. He, he is above all other gods. Yeah. It didn't matter because he said, he didn't care because first of all, God was God number two. Yeah. This God said, this is all going to happen after you die. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, Why yeah. Why should you care about this God? Uh, that's right. So there's that initial thing. Yeah, sure. Right. Yeah, that's right. And you, you've hit the nail on the head as the picture of paganism. Paganism doesn't matter. It, to them, it does not matter how many gods there are. That's not the problem. If you said he's the exclusive God, now we have a problem. That's a similar point. I was going to point out that um, he might have learned something about God because he might have learned something about God, but he presents the offering incense to Daniel. Yeah. Which is a kind of interesting Exactly. Exactly. And, and, of course, there are some people who would read that and go, why didn't Daniel stand and say, stop it? Well, uh, he may have but it's not bothered to have revealed it here. That's the thing. All right. Be sure and do chapter three next week. Read it ahead of time. Mark uh, the text and uh, chapter three. Then we'll deal with the three friends uh, and the challenge of them worshiping one of Nebuchadnezzar's gods. And so that will uh, that'll be our, uh, our lesson then. Thank you. And you don't mind. Move on down to the front a little bit since everything's going to be going on in front of us. Those of you who typically uh, live in the front or front part of the uh, congregation, that would be helpful. Mm -hmm.